You're listening to the ANA Podcast Network, powered by Odyssey, a leading multi-platform audio content and entertainment company. Listen on the Odyssey app. Hello and welcome to the Marketing Futures Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Burbridge. AI has been on the lips of about every marketer in the industry this year, and one question in particular has persisted. Is this stuff going to take my job? Well, we've invited Wonderman Thompson's Jason Carmel to give his perspective on the subject. A presenter at this year's South by Southwest, Jason provided the Austin crowd a practical guide to whether your AI is sentient, including a sentientometer website. I won't spoil the episode, but let's just say it's not quite time to be packing up your desks. Jason and I discuss the advantages and challenges AI brings to the industry today. And yes, whether or not AI is coming for your J.O. Everybody, we are back in the ANA Marketing Futures Virtual Podcast Studio. My guest today is Jason Carmel, the global lead of creative data at Wonderman Thompson. Jason, thank you so much for joining us on the pod today. It is my genuine pleasure. Thanks for having me. We are jumping into a really, 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 really important or at least buzzing and top of mind topic in the marketing world right now. But before we get ahead of ourselves, I kind of want to level set with my listenership. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how your journey led you to become the global lead of creative data at Wonderman Thompson? Yeah, sure. It's I, I mean, the I guess the Cliff Notes version of it is what we're all after. Uh, and for me, I started off uh, trying and shoe as a data person. I would wear the, you know, the standard issue uniform, blue button-down long sleeve shirt, blazer, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. I would use words like pipe and connection and API and things like that. And I uh, and I worked in that space for a long time, and I love it. I think it's great. I think it has transformed uh, advertising all all up, and it's really interesting to see how that has merged in with with advertising. I, I work for Wonder and Thompson, which as you can tell by the name has been a merger of, of several agencies. As those mergers would occur over the course of my career, I, I would occasionally get the chance to kind of reconsider, all right, you know, what do I want to be when I grow up? Uh, and I found that after Wonderman and Thompson merged to, to become Wonderman Thompson, it was this really interesting uh, smashing together of what has historically been the creative powerhouse, G. Walter Thompson, and then uh, Wonderman, which has been just a data, just a tried and true data shop. And, you know, so where did I want to play in that? And the things that had sort of really drawn my interest, where I, I found myself gravitating towards, uh, was on the creative side. I think what a lot of times when we think about data and advertising, we think of, all right, let's look before the thing goes out. Let's predict. Let's mm-hmm. model. Is this thing going to work? Do we think it'll work? Where, sh- where should we put it? All things like that. Or we look after the fact. Did it work? Let's measure it. Let's optimize it. Let's see what where we do next. But very little attention was being put in the actual work itself. How do you use data for the creative idea? How does data manifest and blow people's minds? And I love that stuff. It also meant that I got to work with creatives who are weird people. And that's amazing and fun. And so for all of those reasons, I was like, you know, can I do more of this? And uh, fortunately, the agency provided that opportunity. And uh, and so I've been able to uh, staple together a small group of insanely talented people with diverse skills who can kind of bring this to life. So that's, that's how I landed there. It took me you know, 15, 20 years to get there. And I didn't even know that's where I was going. 
-hmm. when I started. But now that I'm here, I find myself very satisfied with that kind of work. I find it to be super fun. That's awesome. And Jason, I could feel your passion and your excitement for this coming through Zoom screens and and headphones and all of that stuff. It really is very apparent that you love what you do. And I think that that kind of speaks to how effective you've been doing it. So the topic I was kind of teasing earlier was AI in general and this idea, because there has been, listen, AI is getting more and more and more impressive with each day. And to the untrained eye, it is kind of easy to think like, hey, is this becoming a little too smart? Is this becoming, you know, is this approaching human intelligence? And you actually just uh, several months ago were at South by Southwest and titled A Practical Guide to Whether Your AI is Sentient which included an actual sentient-o-meter. Could you explain to our listenership kind of why you took this approach to your presentation at South By in such a way? Yeah, well, I mean, to take a step back, obviously artificial intelligence is having its moment for Absolutely. For, uh, for whatever it is, and that's fine. But the technology, there are two things I would, I would just add as little flavor contextually. The first really? is AI has been around as a functioning technology for years. We've been using it um, to get from point A to point B using our maps. Um, we use it to blur our background on our Zoom calls and Teams calls and all, all of that. So we, we're comfortable with it. We use it a lot. So the fact that just now it is getting, you know, it's it, it has the hearts and minds and, and anxiety of, of the collective consciousness is to me both interesting, fascinating, and weird. The second thing that I, I'm always quick to point out is that a lot of people talk about AI as if it is one thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, the a- we have AI now, the AI. And so the, a- and what that does is it, I think it gives a little bit more agency than it actually has. Think about medicine. Oh, thank goodness we have the medicine. Right. So now I will be healthy. That's, you know, no one talks like that. They're like, I got to go take, you know, there's a radical difference between aspirin and chemotherapy. And if you just go and ask for the medicine, that's a slow road to, to ill health. And it's the mm-hmm. same thing with AI. Um, and so I think a lot of people are conflating and adding all of these things in together. And that's, be- and that's where they get to this spot of, wait, uh, you know, is this going to be like, are we in a Skynet scenario here? What's going on? So the South by Southwest talk that you referenced, I got to present it with my colleague, Alinka Barson, who's a data scientist, and she codes in, in AI all the time. And we started to see just how, I think, especially over the, the, the last year, how human sounding, human feeling, some of these things were. It, it hit us initially when there was a Google engineer who worked on their Lambda model, which is, the, which is what BARD is built on. And mm. he came out in the press and said, you know what, I think, I think this language model might be sentient. Um, and there was all that press. Everyone was like, what? And for us, the AI community writ large knew it wasn't sentient. And Alinka and I had that, that feeling as well. We understood that it wasn't sentient. And then we saw that he unfortunately lost his job. And there was all of this controversy back and forth of, was he right? Who knows? And it it led us to, to this really interesting, call it philosophical space mm-hmm. of how would we know? Like, if- Yeah, that's like, very true. Like there's no, you know, like we have COVID tests, uh, but what's the like, you know, what do we give a machine to know that it's, and so we, we started down this path of like, what would it look like almost as a joke. But then the more we did it, the more we realized that there's some really interesting thinking out, out there around that. And it was kind of a back door for us to talk about the things in AI 
that we think are radically important right now. Yes. Um, things like the bias, things like ethics and ethical practices, responsible AI, things that you can do before the AI decides it's alive. And so we used it, um, the, the sentientometer and the is your AI sentient a practical guide as kind of a shoehorn to talk about that, that, that stuff. So how many AI systems ended up being sentient once you ran them through? Zero. I think we we're all <laughs> safe. Shocking, shocking, yeah, shocking. Well, I mean, that's the thing. Like you talk about what sentience is and, and even if you could get people to agree on that, like, which is not, mm-hmm. which is no easy feat if you do any of the reading on it, you know, we're just nowhere close to it. Right. Um, the, the really interesting thing about artificial intelligence is how good it is at mimicking things. And these mm-hmm. language models are built to mimic humans. And so it's easy, or not easy, but it's forgivable, understandable for people to look at this and go, <gasps> it knows me. It's like, but it, the truth of the matter is, it, it is just really, really computationally phenomenal at faking it. Yeah. I mean, it was Lambda was trained on trillions and trillions and trillions of words in the internet. It's just kind of funny that the engineer never stopped him being like, maybe this is taking from the 5 million stories about robots becoming sentient and like mm-hmm. giving you a good impression. Like Totally. And the, the other thing is, is how you word questions determines mm-hmm. how it gives responses. It wants to answer your question. Um, and so it will do its its darndest to make that believable in, in a human sounding way. That's what a language model literally is built to do. So it's just, it was one of those funny things. Um, but then uh, what is fascinating is that since we gave that talk, how many of the checkboxes have since come to pass? Now, th- that's not to say that we're really any substantively closer to a sentient AI, but some of the, the tests like AI has a really difficult job of understanding things out of context. The what's wrong with this picture thing that the five-year-old mm-hmm. can do, it doesn't see that a lot of times. It sees a horse on a cloud and thinks, well, there it is. That seems okay. Right. Um, and so you could always fool it with that. But they, as an example, if you play with ChatGPT or Bing or Bard and you show it a picture like that, it'll answer, well, there's a horse on a cloud, you idiot. That's what's wrong with the picture. So it's starting to get these, it's starting to, again, be better at mimicking these human behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're still, I mean, is it is it your friend? Is it in love with you? No, like we gotta, yeah. we gotta ease up on that stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I've asked ChatGPT in, in many different ways. One of the uh, toughest questions that I ask every single one of my podcast guests, and there is no way to make it tell you what its favorite album is. Like, it's just yeah, like, there's just not I, I, a thing. I've I've listened to your, your podcast and you have a hard enough time getting humans to commit to one single album. Like, there's just <laughs> like, um, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm empathetic for, for sure. So let's zoom into the marketing world in specific for a moment. Mm-hmm. What are your what are your thoughts on this idea that AI will take away marketers' jobs? Are are we all going to be AI babysitters in the near future? I don't think so. I mean, look, what do I know in terms of like predicting the future? It's a weird world we live in. For we sure, we will not but, hold you to but, it. Yeah, but but listen, the 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 when somebody says AI is going to take my job. Uh, to me, I can intuit two things. The first is they have never played with AI themselves. Yep, 100%. Um, that, and that, that doesn't take away the legitimacy of their fear, mm. but it, it 
but it, it proves to me that they haven't seen this thing work and not work in a real way. Otherwise, they wouldn't be uh, afraid. The second thing that I can intuit is that they don't value themselves or their jobs, uh, the jobs that they do enough. And I think that's essential for people in marketing to remember, whether you're a strategist or creative or a data person who does insights, that the skills that you bring are bigger than just pushing a pixel around. They're bigger than just adding two columns together. There's a level of insight, a level of craft that you have um, that will never get replaced. Instead, it is a tool that you will use to do some of the things that you hated to do a lot faster. So my, you know, the short answer is no, I don't see it taking. I think there will be a race, a very quick race, I suppose, of people trying to get super efficient with it. Can we, you know, Somebody will make a call somewhere. Can we fire you know, 300 people and replace them with an AI that does the same thing? And I would only uh, suggest two things there. The first is that it is a person doing that, not the AI. Right. So the AI did not take your jobs, my friends and neighbors. It was the person who decided that was a good experiment to run. And the second is I secretly suspect that they don't value your jobs either if they think you can be replaced. They don't understand your jobs. At Wonder and Thompson, I've never heard this conversation, and I don't expect to, but if somebody were like, we should replace 300 copywriters with an AI, I would be like, you literally don't understand how this works, and you don't value your writers. You don't value what they've been doing at all. I appreciate the fear because so few people are familiar with this tool intimately. Um, or this tool set, but I, I don't think it's something that's keeping me up at night. The Certified ANA Marketing Professional, or CAMP, program is a rigorous 35-hour online certification program developed specifically with the ANA marketer in mind. Covering the entire marketing process from brand strategy and activation to marketing implementation across digital and analytic platforms, CAMP represents the full spectrum of the marketing universe. To begin your certification, go to ana.net slash camp future. I would tend to agree with you. It's, it's one of those things at a glance. If you're just looking at it, you're like, oh my goodness. You spend five minutes with an AI generated article and you understand that if you, if you're going to copy paste this and like, that's mm -hmm. your content marketing strategy, that is a, that's a car careening off a cliff. That is just yeah, a bad yeah. look. It's also a, a circular drain to no imagination. Yes. Like, cause the other thing that you, the, the other thing that you have to keep in mind is that this stuff has been trained and it's been trained on everything that's already happened or mm -hmm. every conversation. The best uh, example that I give to people to do this is um, whatever city you live in, ask um, ChatGPT or Bard and say, hey, I'm going to visit insert city here. Uh, tell me three awesome things to do. And invariably they're gonna pull the, it'll pull those three awesome things from like the most common, obvious, like I live in Seattle, oh, you should visit the space, you know, well, thank you so much, <laughs> like, like super helpful. Um, but like, whereas you or I, you, you say, hey, you know, uh, Carmel, I'm coming to Seattle. Where should I go? I say the Museum of Pop Culture, 100%. I like the, the Ballard Locks. You should go visit that. You should go on this hike or that hike. Like there's no personality for things like that. Preference, I think, is such a big thing that we as humans bring that an AI just won't have. So so yeah, I, I for things like that and for a number of other reasons, I'm not worried about an AI taking my job. Yeah. And I think that you made a really great point there is that they're trying to please you and get the most 
safely, I think I did this right answer. And that's going to be based on consensus. So you're going to get the most middle of the road thing Mm -hmm. ever, especially if you don't know how to talk to it, which kind of leads me to my next thing. There is, since the beginning of algorithms and AI machine learning, there is this uh, thought of garbage in, garbage out. You can't give AI uh, lead and ask it to spin gold. So uh, in that kind of looking forward, what are your feelings on something like a prompt engineer becoming a new position in the workflow? Somebody specifically trying to figure out how best to communicate with AI systems. Yeah, it's a great question. If it, it does become a job, I think it'll be a job for a minute and then it will go away. I, this is a uh, this is a an absurd comparison, but it'll give you the vibe. Like no one has a job as a spell checker. Mm-hmm. Like, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's like prompt engineering will get easier and easier. The reason right, right now that prompt engineering is such a desired skill is that you do have to talk to the uh, the, the various uh, models differently in order to persuade them to do something very precise. And I think as the uh, models get better, it will be better at interpreting that. So, and the, and the front end UIs will, will um, do a lot of that work. So I, I wouldn't, uh, I would decide as a, incoming college student that I'm going to major in prompt engineering. I just don't see that. But I do think that um, prompt engineering is a skill set. And I do believe that it's something that we, we should all maybe spend a little time with. Um, yeah, I, I think at least in the in incredibly short term, it mm-hmm. could be, you know, for the next like year and a half, it could be a pretty big differentiator. Like I've been kind of collecting these tips on like, well, before you do that for me, ask me 10 clarifying questions. That'll help you do your job better. Things like that. But like you said, I think the technology is going to outpace that in a minute. And um, mm-hmm. so, yeah, it's something to, it's, a, it's one bow in the quiver. I would not dedicate your life to it. Yeah, I, I, it's, I think that's exactly it. I think designers are safe. I think writers are safe. Um, but I think they would do well um, to play with these tools and to figure out how they can use it for their advantage. Um, yes, because you've got a tireless assistant. You've got a tireless research assistant and you're going to have mm-hmm. to double double check its work. But like sincerely, it can really get you to step three mm-hmm. in, in, you know, a couple of well-placed questions. So I yeah, totally agree. So you said earlier very correctly that this is AI's kind of moment in the sun. But no other platform has really kind of taken center stage uh, more than ChatGPT. I know now Bard and Bing and, and things are starting to kind of introduce their version on it. But what do you attribute to ChatGPT's early success specifically versus other AI language generation platforms? So it's a that's a great question. Uh, it's a, um, you know how sometimes you hear about a brand's breakout album and then mm-hmm. you realize that they've been putting out, out, they win best new artist, but they've been putting out albums for like 27 years and there's that, that odd disconnect. Um, so I, I think that's what, it, I mean, GPT. It's a great analogy. Uh, uh, like, well, so GPT has been around for a long time. Um, the, the, when it finally hit, we were on GPT-3, um, which is, you know, you don't have to be a code person to infer that there was a GPT-1 and 2 book before that, and then several iterations of each of those. So they've been working on this a ton. They were the first people uh, to release it in a usable way to the right audience. Mm. Um, so they didn't release it to everybody, but they, the people they did release it to were, uh, f- uh, for the main, 
uh, there for the right reasons to see how this thing would work. And they were just as excited, those beta testers were just as excited as OpenAI was about getting this the word out. And so it was a classic example of, of word of mouth, I, I think. It was, it really was marketing 101. It was like, give, find your core audience, give them access, um, make them feel loyal to you. Um, give them the ability to do your marketing for you. It's uh, And I think OpenAI gave a masterclass on that. I would say right now, I don't even know if theirs is the best tool out there. I mean, you, you grade it on, on a sliding scale of a hundred different um, categories um, and it certainly ha has its problems, but they what they did initially so well was they released it um, to the right people in the right cadence at the right time. They kept them informed. They brought them along for the ride. And as a result, it was all of those people who were like, holy balls, did you see this? Like, um, <laughs> I don't think OpenAI spent a dime on like banner ads. It was all idiots like me running around showing my colleagues, did you see this thing? Like, mm -hmm. look at this thing. Um, yeah. It was Gmail invites on steroids. Like. Exactly, exactly. Totally. I mean, there's another great analogy, it was, but that's exactly what it was. It was, and for an audience that I think is hyper specific, I mean, like you want a great, somebody should be writing a B2B marketing case study about this because I think it was brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yes, a masterclass in, in growth hacking for almost no money whatsoever. And I think to you, you come up with another really good point is that like, I don't know, it's tech, so I doubt this is going to be nearly as long-lasting, but it's kind of got that Coca-Cola effect where it might not win a blind taste test. It might not be everybody's tastiest soda, but the brand and the marketing has done such an amazing job mm -hmm. that it's it's connected itself to yeah. your mind and your heart. It, yeah, chat GPT has become the Kleenex of AI. Yes, um, you're, you're and that's a great right. place to be. It, it is, and and I'm I'm very curious. I mean, I know that we have the um, attention span of fruit flies in this industry, and it's fine. But like, I do wonder how long that's that's going to last. Where you cheat know, uh, ChatGPT, it was like a half step model that the that where it started to blow up. Or they've since released GPT four. A number, you know, Bing uses a version of that too. They have different versions, more advanced versions. But because that's what everybody saw, it's like. You know, that's the one that is in every um, pitch deck that a tech person hasn't seen. Let's go back to the reason behind the way you kind of positioned yourself by Southwest presentation. You wanted to kind of grab people's attention and then kind of bring them back down to earth on like, what are the what are the big things we need to be thinking about AI right now? And I know that part of that are the risks uh, and we will get into that, but are there some AI capabilities that exist now that are kind of flying under the radar for marketers that you think should be a little bit more on their kind of sites? Well, I'll tell you what, I, I think a lot of a, a lot of people look at a tool like AI as a unitasker, which is a terrible thing. Okay, it can make images for me. Um, and there's certainly AIs that, that can do that. But there are a lot of, I think looking at artificial intelligence as a platform uh, is something that if I'm a marketer, I would pay special attention to. So um, uh, the best example I could give you right now is the, this uh, idea of Bing AI, uh, of the Bing chat and OpenAI having this concept of plugins, um, mm -hmm. where right now you can say, anybody can sign up for it and say, hey, you know, can you tell me what happened in the news or, um, or where are the six places I should visit if I go to Seattle? Um, but at some point, you're going to be able to say, can you book me that, that travel? 
And so right now, you know, Expedia, for example, has a uh, has been experimenting with a plugin that if you say, hey, you know, even though you gave me lame reasons why Seattle's awesome, uh, I still want to go there. Can uh, on these dates? Can can you help me find prices? And then it would pull in um, almost like a an Alexa skill or something like that. It would pull in data from a very specific source and surface that as part of the AI. And to the end user, yeah, I might know that it's coming from Expedia, but it's still the AI that's telling me that. And so it has this haze of an automation bias. It makes me think it's the right thing to do. And so if I'm a marketer, I'm thinking to myself, all right, how do I build a plugin for whatever I'm in? And I'm not just talking about things that are e-commerce related, which to me is a no-brainer, but like, you know, if I'm Nestle, what plugin do I build for an AI so that when people talk about taking a break, for whatever reason, Kit Kats get mentioned? Um, I mean, that's a weird example, but, but, but that's, no, but I get that along like, the lines. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's going to be the same race that the app store for Apple um, had where, you know, when there were 10 apps, those 10 apps were amazing and everybody had them. And so that's where you want to be uh, when this mm-hmm. thing starts to go public, you want to be the first travel plugin for uh, an AI. You want to be the first um, food and beverage to plug in for that. So that's my, if I'm investigating anything right now, and I am, it's it's in that neck of the woods. So there's a tip from your uncle Jason um, <laughs> on where to go. Much appreciated. Do you think that brands that kind of dip their toe into Alexa skills or voice, uh, do you think they've got a leg up or is this kind of another dimension, a different uh, thing completely? I, I don't, I think it's a different thing completely. I think, um, I think the there's a metaphor that is useful, but in terms of like a ripping out an Alexa skill and sticking it into a um, yeah, uh, no. an AI thing, I I know that's not what you're suggesting, but I want to be very explicit to people who might have heard that. Like you should not. Do yeah, that. don't do that. Media. It was the same thing. Like anytime you try and take a new medium and take the stuff you have in an old medium and cram it in there, like the first websites were basically. They called them pages because all they were were print brochures, mm-hmm. all right? And, and that, and very quickly, we evolved past that to the point where you kind of look like a dinosaur if that's all you had. And I would say the same thing was going to happen with AI. You want to give, you want the plug-in to feel integrated into the, into the system. I'm hoping enough people have uh, early social media PTSD to not make the it, same exact mistake that again. You would think that that would be a lesson learned for all of us, wouldn't you? Keep your 30 seconds away from me. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) You mentioned briefly a couple of the actual threats that we need to kind of keep an eye on. Bias in AI being an incredible one. Humans using AI for nefarious purposes, I think is the thing that should be a central uh, focus. But what do we need to be mindful of while we're developing these AI systems so that we could push away from that nefarious and toward this like, you know, easier, quicker, more productive future that AI kind of has the promise to bring? Well, it's a, I I think the first thing any group needs when they are approaching a tool set like this is to sit down and, and come up with a list of things that you um, that you will and won't do with this, that you will and won't allow. Like, uh, what are your principles? What are your guiding principles uh, 
for this. And there are a lot of really good ones that exist out, out there. Um, a colleague, in fact, a colleague of mine just pulled together a list of like the Department of Defense has a list of principles for AI and they're not bad to be, you know, uh, I, I think perhaps counterintuitively, like they're, they're you know, uh, Microsoft as a, as you might expect, has a really wonderful viewpoint on responsible AI of what we, you know, what we believe and what we don't believe. And so, but I think for you as a development team or a marketing team, figuring out, all right, what will we do and what won't we do? And then making sure you abide by that is like step the first, like it's, it's table stakes. I think the other thing that well, it's like any kind of source checking. You would never buy something from someone. You would never buy an ingredient or software or um, without knowing where it came from. I think there's a, a little bit of automation bias where we think the AI is always going to be right. The AI is always going to be trained well. It's always going to contain the information. And what we know for absolute certainty is that that's not the case. So figuring out what you are using like what you are building this thing on and then making sure that there are appropriate checks and balances in place so that you don't violate those principles you just set up, I think are essential. And a lot of that has to do with obviously certain bias, both um, bias against something and then bias as an absence of, of, of something, mm -hmm. um, sort of lack of inclusion, um, disregarding an entire group or, or, some, or something like that. I mean, for me, those are the contexts that I think a marketer needs. They need to say, if somebody... If they want to work with an open AI, if they want to work with a Google or whomever to build a system for their own, all right, how do I make sure that we don't do a big thing badly? Tell me what safeguards are in place. What safeguards do I need to put in place? Uh, how's this tested? I mean, you see lots of historical uh, research about how you know people are literally invisible to a, a vision API. Like, how do we prevent that from happening? Horror stories like that. So, so that's that's where I, I would push people conceptually. And there's no easy answer for it. I think there's a similar struggle. I mean, we, we referenced social media, but the idea of user-generated content for a lot of brands was just a mind shift. Like, wait, yeah. they can talk about me and I can't tell them not to talk about me? They what, Wait, what? No, mm -hmm. it's my brand. You, you're not allowed to tell people you don't like me. Like, and then, so we're going to ban you, which is like the worst thing you could do, or we will like, argue with you, which is another. So like, there's a, um, there's a learning curve for this as well that I think marketers should be excited to go on. I don't think they should view themselves as idiots for going on this learning curve. I've been working with, with AI for the past probably four years now, and I'm still an idiot in many ways as, I, as new things come out. And we have to figure out, okay, what are the implications of voice cloning? Mm -hmm. like voice cloning's out there you know people are using it so there are all of these like i guess sort of butterfly wing waves of things that we just have to think about and it's incumbent upon the marketing team to do that because it'll be your butts on the line when it goes south and so bringing in experts doing a lot of the reading that's available out there i think is is important as well yeah, incredibly well said. And uh, I will just add this. I am the resident shiny object handler at the ANA, and I'm always kind of quick to contextualize and to put in a process and you don't need to be an expert or this or that or the other thing. This is a subject to get knowledgeable on. This is something to put a little time aside to read up on. And it's not just kind of making sure that there are smart people in your network and your orbit that you're getting these little bon mots from. Mm -hmm. This is the real deal. It's you may not be the things that you're excited or worried about just yet, but in general, automation, algorithms, artificial intelligence, machine learning is the real deal. And it will be an incredibly mm -hmm. formative force yeah. now and into forever. Like, 
A hundred percent. And the only thing I would say to add that is those words that you are listing can be really daunting for people, like uh, depending on where you come from in life, depending on what background you have. And all I will say is that there are a lot of resources out there that are completely approachable from a non-practitioner perspective. And those are great. And so I, I wouldn't let I wouldn't, you know, say I was just never that good at math. I don't want to look at something with an algorithm in it. That's fine. Like mm -hmm. you shouldn't have to. Yeah. Um, this is this is a big thing. It's going to affect us all. And as a result, it's big enough that plenty of people who don't know from any math have written really, really well executed articles, well articulated um, pieces about about this that that are approachable for for you mere mortals out there. He, 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 that's, that, that's really fantastic advice though. Cause I think that you're right. I do kind of just get caught up in all of the jargon of it, but there are incredibly accessible things that break this down into lay terms. Mm -hmm. And once you got it uh, like a, yeah, once you can wrap your head around it and put it into your language, a lot of the other stuff kind of starts to fall into place mm -hmm. as, as far as what it's useful for, what can it do? What can't it do? What makes sense? What doesn't totally. So Jason, we are going to pivot the pod a little bit and ask you three questions we ask all of our guests. The first one is open by design. What are your thoughts on diversity, equity, and inclusion? That's a podcast, the subject in its own right. Of, of oh, course, yeah, I don't ask I'm, small questions. You know, <laughs> I know. I'm thrilled, you, I'm thrilled you ask it because it really should be part of every conversation. I um, uh, And here's what I'll say is as a, uh, you know, as a white middle-aged uh, cisgendered, uh, heterosexual, like uh, I have had more privilege than that I know how to count. So other than to point you at people who can articulate this way better and more empathetically than, than I can, I, I'll say where, where it specifically impacts my world is that I have never met a good data scientist who doesn't understand systemic bias. There's no, it doesn't exist. The Venn diagrams don't over, the circles never overlap because the data is all there. And if you are seeing the charts that a lot of, I think, uh, people who talk against DE and I are, are using, they're, they're just case examples on how to misread data. Um, the other thing that I, I will say is that we literally have a, a, an example, like I'm living the example of seeing uh, AI as a systemic bias. Um, mm. it's, it mm. is the, it is the perfect example encapsulated of a systemic, but if you look at the sort of the knowledge on the internet as a system, who has access to it, who was able to inform that from start to finish, what the language and the, uh, the tone about various topics are, then you understand very quickly why when computer vision is used to recognize people, it recognizes white people more than black people or something like that. You understand why when algorithms are meant to try and find really good hires, it stops uh, sending forward women's resumes. There's no better crystallized example in amber of a systemic bias than artificial intelligence. And so for me, if I could claim any viewpoint, it is that, it is, it's here, like the proof is right here that systemic bias exists. And as a result, like maybe you should think about who's playing with this on behalf of your brands. Is it all people who look like me? You're Then you're missing a trick and you will do a big thing badly, I promise you. Mm -hmm. So bring, bring people in from different backgrounds, bring people in uh, with different sort of thought uh, processes, different cultural uh, backgrounds as well. The more you do that, the better sense you'll have where the gaps are and the safer I, I, I think you'll be um, as you use this tool, the more you'll be able to use it more effectively. All right, Jason, you've been crushing it so far. 
<laughs> from the hard ones, right? Yeah. Now we get to the part where the wheat separates from the chaff. Mm-hmm. Jason, Jason Carmel, global lead of creative data at Wonderman Thompson. What is your favorite album of all time and why? Okay. You give this a lot of thought. Yeah, I knew this was coming. I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if you're going to even, I don't know if anybody's going to know this. So I will take some solace in that. These are some of my favorite. Yeah. Um, there's a, there's a band from the early nineties from Scotland called the Trash Can Sinatras. And their first main album, which was on a, on the radio for maybe like 12 minutes total. It's called Kick. Um, I happened to be listening to the radio during what that part of that 12 minutes when they played one song. And I loved that song so much that I actually pulled over, I was driving, I was a, I was a teenager, and I pulled over to the side of the road to hear and to wait for then the next three songs to play so that I could hear who it was. It was like a, uh, it was a thumb, a scroll stop before there was such thing as a scroll stop. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and then, and then I found out who it was. I wrote it down uh, on like a receipt that I found in in uh, in my car. And then I drove instead of where I was going. I drove to a record store, and I wow. uh, and I was like, and I was like, "Do you have this thing?" And they were like, "Who is this band? The Trash Can? What? That doesn't make any sense." And and I had to uh, call around because I later found out that it was they're from Scotland. They had no record label in the U.S. It was a local indie radio station that that played it and so i had to i had to order it um, from a record store and then i had to pay like like 42 dollars for it which oh, back in the day was yeah. like for based on one song and so uh what i later learned and again this was pre-internet is that they are and i would describe their music as sort of like scottish sad bastard music mm -hmm. um it's sort of like uh if you think sort of pro pre-frightened rabbit um jangly kind of like uh um uh jangle pop but the mm -hmm. um but sort of melancholy deep lyric sort of stuff i loved it um and i loved that album i wore it out a hundred percent and i've since bought it and rebought it a hundred times i'm sure and i go see them they still tour occasionally and whenever they come in i go to the concert and i'm so thrilled that there are like a couple hundred people in the audience who are all like, yeah, I pulled over to the side of the road too. So that's for a number of reasons, even beyond the music, it was like that kind of thing I just love. So if you've never heard of them, Trash Can Sinatra's, the album's Cake, give it a whirl. I have my afternoon plan set. Fantastic. That is one hell of a story, Jason. Thank you so much for sharing. All right, we're bringing it up to the present. Uh, what are you listening to now, be it an artist, a song, a podcast, a book? What is making you excited nowadays? Well, I'll give you a book. Um, and it, it, I'll give you one that sort of references part of our earlier conversation. Um, there's my, everyone's like, how can I get started on, on artificial intelligence? I don't know anything about it. The book that I tell everyone to read is by a data scientist named Janelle Shane. And she wrote a book called You Look Like a Thing and I Love You. And the book title comes from when she asked an AI to come up with um, pickup lines. And one of the responses was, you look like a thing. And, I, and she trained it on pickup lines. And then, and so she does all of these weird, wonderful experiments with artificial intelligence that show just how both interesting and 
um, impaired artificial intelligence is and why it works well some places and doesn't others. And I, I think it's a really good uh, introduction. It's a phenomenal introduction, super approachable. You will laugh out loud dozens of times reading these lists that she's compiled of like ice cream flavors or, or things like that, that she's tried to get an AI to do. And it explains just how um, artificial intelligence kind of comes up with its ideas and thinks in air quotes. Um, and it's in, it's done in such a lighthearted, enjoyable way that I can't recommend it enough. So that's where that's the the book I would leave you with. Um, this is ridiculous. I'm I've got an Amazon gift card and I'm using it. <laughs> that that actually it, it, sounds like I'm gonna read it twice. It, in a row. it is. You will you will love this book. I'm telling you, if you have zero, if you're like I, I'm riding in the car with somebody and they're listening to this podcast and I couldn't give a rip about uh, Jason Carmel or anything he's saying, like, honestly, you, you in the back seat, like get this book. I, if you get nothing else out of this conversation, you'll have a giggle and you'll learn something. It's, it's one of my favorite things ever. There you have it, folks. Well, for all the folks that are getting several rips out of Jason Carmel and have, are now <laughs> sitting on the side of the road, just waiting to hear this, this podcast come to an end. Where can we keep uh, keep up with what you are up to and what Wonderman Thompson is up to? Oh, well, uh, I mean, Wonderman Thompson is a marketing machine, so you can follow all of the Wonderman Thompson handles and you'll occasionally see stuff from me uh, on that as well. You could, I mean, on LinkedIn, my name is my name. So, you know, stop by and say hi, and I will occasionally um, torture you with articles and references of things there. Um, and then uh, uh, the um, the session that we spoke about initially that we did in South by Southwest, it has... A, a website, a sort of a companion website where you can see if your AI is sentient or not. And it's uh, a sentientometer.com. Uh, uh, and so you should, and that has some ways to see more of our work and see what the sorts of things that me and my team uh, do as well. So um, I would check that out as well. Love it. Absolutely love it. Jason, this has been such a fascinating, enjoyable conversation. I am truly, truly honored to have had you as a guest on the Marketing Futures Podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Marketing Futures Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode and that you'll join us in two weeks when my guest will be Odyssey CMO, Paul Suchman. The Marketing Futures Podcast airs Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern. Have a topic or guest you'd like to hear on the podcast? Shoot us a note at marketingfutures at ana.net. And as always, get ready for the future of marketing at ana.net slash futures. This has been a presentation of the ANA Podcast Network, powered by Odyssey.